vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there any? Excuse me. Is there a thing of which it is said, "See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us." There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word will and shall endure forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, incredible opportunity um, to come preach your word. Uh, Father, as I pray every time uh, I do this, I'll pray again. I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, be the one to come preach today. Father, I don't say this out of any sort of faint humility. I, I am the worst sinner I know in this room. I struggle to believe the things I will spend the next 45 minutes uh, preaching. I'm a doubtful man. I'm an anxious man. Um, and I, I need the gospel uh, desperately more than I ever have. And so, Father, I ask that you come preach today. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune our hearts and minds to see and savor something new of Your amazing grace. And Father, may these incredibly heavy and weighty words that we're going to move through, may they guide us to Your gospel so that we'll all leave here feeling lighter. Father, I don't know about everybody in this room, but I would love to leave today feeling lighter. I would love... For all of us here today, I suspect, Father, that if we're all honest, we're all carrying heavy things. And I pray that Your Word will be preached, that it can do what only Your Word can do, and that is to remind us that in Christ we are free and we have everything that we could ever need. I ask that You'll... Uh, remind us of that today and be with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, before I get started, I just I have to take a survey. It's not really part of the sermon, but, you know, the pastors aren't here, so... <laughs> you can just do whatever. Um, I, I see, really, it's, it is sort of part of the sermon, but really, I'm just curious. I asked the question that I'm about to ask you to a room full of 18 college freshman last semester, last spring semester. 
and two non-traditional students. So I had 20 students in the room. 18 of them were, college, were, were you know, eight, 17, 18, 19 college freshmen. A couple of dual enrollments, like 15, 16. But then there were two. There, there was a lady that was like in her 40s and a gentleman in his 60s, and they were, you know, non-traditional students. Those of you that don't know, I teach in the Alabama two-year college system. It's a U.S. history class. And I, and I, and I asked this sentence to them, and I, so I want to see a show of hands. And I'm going to prejudge your answers by how old you look. And I guarantee you it's going to work. Because I see old, older faces and younger faces. Look, I'm getting older. It's okay. I mean, you, know, I, you know, it's getting there. It happens. Um, I'm going to ask you this. Who in this room, by a show of hands, remembers who Jimmy Hoffa was? Yep. Look at that. Look at him. Look at that. Back there. Look at those young faces. Just sitting there. No hands. Yeah. And then the hands who went up. That's about. That's a pretty good data set. Okay. Uh, when I asked that question to the room full of college students, zero percent of the young kids raised their hands, and the other two were like, "Yeah, I remember." You know. Well, if you don't remember who Jimmy Hoffa was, at one point, Jimmy Hoffa could arguably had said he was the second most powerful man in America. He was president of the Teamsters Union, meaning his thumb was on the trucking industry. Uh, what, early 60s through, you know, early 70s, uh, mid-70s. And uh, uh, not necessarily the most straight-laced guy, sort of got in bed with the mafia and, 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 you know, went to prison, got out of prison, wanted his job back, and, um, uh, you know, was sort of taken out by the mafia. Nobody knew where, but still this day, there's this, nobody knows where Jimmy Hoffa's body was. I know if you're under a certain age, you're like, what in the world? Long story short... <clears throat> Uh, in 2019, there was a movie made, released straight to Netflix, called The Irishman. If you haven't seen it, it's really long. It's probably not the best movie in the world. Al Pacino plays Jimmy Hoffa, and I'm an Al Pacino fan, but he's the worst Jimmy Hoffa ever. He doesn't even try to sound like him. He's just, you know, it's like, oh, oh Jimmy Hoffa. You know, it's all like that. But uh, I tell you this because... Um, by it was a Martin Scorsese film. Scorsese and Robert De Niro um, uh, said that the movie was not first and foremost about Jimmy Hoffa, but about this particular story. Well, the story was based on a book by a guy named Frank Sheeran, who was sort of a right-hand man, confidant, goon of Hoffa. Uh, and according to Sheeran's story... Um, sort of a deathbed confession, he confessed to killing Jimmy Hoffa. And that's what the movie's about. His best friend kills Hoffa. Talks about where the body went and everything. Um, but all through the movie, we learn and see that Sheeran's life is just a life spent trying to get and protect himself, protect his bottom line, protect his family, protect Hoffa. You know, and, and he's always torn between doing just you know, justifying himself all the way through. And according to Scorsese, this is what the film's about. He said, it's a cautionary tale on a life spent trying to get. Well, at the end of the movie, when it's all said and done, you see Frank Sheeran in his nursing home room. He has nobody. His daughter, who became kind of close to Hoffa, realizes what her dad has done and to stopped talking to him, didn't speak to him, pretended like he didn't exist. Um, all of his friends are dead by the end of his life. The, there's a scene where the FBI comes and they say, Frank, just tell us. If you're worried about somebody getting you, they're all dead. 
They don't, they're not alive anymore. Just tell us so we can know where the body is. And then at the very last scene, he's just sitting in this nursing home room with nothing. Just zero. No family, no friends, nothing. I tell you this because this is sort of where the book of Ecclesiastes brings us. I, uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to have a favorite book in the Bible, but this is mine. It's so raw and honest, and it's so real, and it's so uh, diagnostic. It exposes this fear of an empty, meaningless life, which is understandably not a place where you and I particularly want to spend a lot of time. We're all aware of time. I hope you are. Younger people, don't let me discourage you too much, but man, it (laughs) really picks up speed. Um, And this book can be, on the surface, a little bit depressing. Something unique about it. God's silent in it. Now, I I know, hang on, I was like, well, it's the Word of God, Justin. I I, I get that. But God doesn't actually speak in this book. Okay? Uh, Charles Bridges, in his mid-19th century commentary on the book, says, uh, It has the tone not of the prophet declaring a word from God to Israel, but that of the philosopher communicating the state of the world. It's this bombshell of just the forensic diagnosis of the human condition that slashes through our suppressions and avoidances. I was prepping and I thought of it this way. It's, it's this sort of theological GPS that drags us to Psalm 22. My God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can fall into the pursuing arms of the shepherd in Psalm 23. You can think of it that way. Or where Isaiah was in chapter 8. You know, just death and destruction is on the window. What is, you know, how, how can life, have, things have gotten to this. But unto us a child is born, a son is given. Ultimately, this book brings us to the place where our only hope is the only hope that any of us really ever had all along. And that's the hope of the gospel, the great reversal, God's rescue mission, one-way love for sinners like you and me. But to get us there, it grabs us by the arm without any regard to how you feel about it. I gotta tell my history students, history is not for you to love or to hate. You just gotta deal with it. It's kind of what this book is. It's a book for the grown-ups. It grabs us by the arm and drags us to the places we spend our lives trying to avoid, which, as we'll see, ironically, are the very places that God in Christ promises to meet us. Okay? So, you know me, I only have two points. I only probably ever will have two points. Okay? I want to look at uh, two things. What Ecclesiastes unveils. What does Ecclesiastes unveil? And it's a mess. And number two, what Ecclesiastes foretells. What Ecclesiastes unveils and what Ecclesiastes foretells. Again, by way of honest, real-life, under-the-sun diagnosis, Ecclesiastes essentially unveils one thing. And that is the deepest longing of the human heart. To matter, to have meaning. Ultimately, 
to be justified. I don't care what is itching you. At its core, the big itch under the little itch is the desire for justification. We're going to see that this is not just an unsa- a non-Christian problem. And we'll get there in a minute, but you know, if you have any misconception that becoming a Christian means that you don't struggle with justification anymore, brace yourself, it's going to be a long 30 minutes. It's not just a non-Christian problem, it's a Christian problem. Um, and you and I look for it in thousands of different ways. Really quickly, let's, you know, let's just peruse the next couple, well, the next two and a half chapters, I guess. Look at what he says. Which is so, this is such a current book. Listen, if you're a young person headed to college on a college campus and, you wanna, and, and you're thinking, you know, how, how, how can I be relevant? Use Ecclesiastes. It's so timeless. It's one of the most timeless books because it's such a human book. Look at what he says. So after he gets to these, these first 11 verses where he's like, well, everything is just meaningless... In the face of that, he set out to justify himself. The first thing, what did he try to do? The vanity of wisdom. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel of Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. Here's a key verse here that we're going to come back to at the end because it's a little bit of a glimmer of Jesus here. Uh, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to, to, to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So in other words, I tried to, I tried to learn as much about this world and I found that it was... Vanity, meaninglessness, nothingness. He goes on in chapter 2. So then I moved on to self-indulgence, hedonism, pleasure. You can read through here and find the things that he did to secure that. It's not very good. You know, concubines and slaves and... Just to... How can I just... How can I feel good? How can I just... How's my flesh ever going to be quenched? And he says, there's no end to it. When has the addict ever said, I'm good? That's okay, well, I'm good now. And then, this is so human, I love this book. It's my favorite book of the Bible. It's like the key of B for you musicians. It's hard when you have these musicians preaching because if you're not a musician, I throw out these illustrations, you're like, good grief, well, shut up, what are you talking about? B is like supposed to be one that everybody's afraid of the key of B because there's like five sharps on the page and Chopin actually said, piano players, you should learn B first because it's so natural and you stop being afraid of it. You know, and it sounds good, it's a rich key. Anyway, um, this book is so great because it's so human. Look, a- a- after the pleasure and the hedonism and the self-indulgence, what does he do? After he sowed his wild oats, what did he do? He prayed for a crop failure and tried to live clean. Nice. Straighten myself up. Button my shirt. And, and what did he say about that? Also, end of chapter 2, verse... Midway through chapter 2, verse 17. At the end of it, what did he say? After pursuing pleasure, after pursuing wisdom, after pursuing clean living, he said, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous for me, for all is vanity and trying to grab the wind, striving after the wind. 
If you can't relate to that, if I can't relate to that, it is so incredibly human and relatable. Well, we have to, if we're in Christ and if we are Christians, um, it behooves us to, to, to remind ourselves of why that is. What is that? Because some of these things are not bad. There's nothing wrong with, with wisdom and living cleanly. Or there's really nothing wrong with, you know, finding pleasure in life. But we have to look at Romans 5. Because if we don't understand that, nothing's going to make sense. Okay? So go with me to Romans 5. This is the trampoline portion of the nickel and dime pony show. Let's pause a little bit towards the end. Romans 5, and I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to move through it because this is not our specific text, but we do need to look at it. Romans 5 verse 12. Uh, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Go to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will all be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've heard Tim Keller talk about this. This is, listen, this is going to bother you and me because really what is Paul saying here? Because of the first Adam, all humanity is tainted by sin. And I get that that bothers you. It bothers me. I was, I was actually at a church. I used to support myself in college, piano hustling. And man, there's, you have no, there's no corner of the Christian church I've not been, I promise you. Let's go get coffee and I'll tell you about some nuts, the things you see. And I actually heard, like a pastor, stand up and say, Bless God, if I'd been in that garden, Lord, I wouldn't have done it. You know, I mean, you know, you and I were perfectly represented at Adam. You sit here today, you're in that. With all the love in my heart, you're going to have to deal with it. Because if that seems unfair, then the gospel's really going to bother you. <laughs> because through one man's righteousness, you were imputed righteousness. And we'll get there in a minute. But what does this mean? This means that when you and I are faced with the meaninglessness of life, with the vanity that the preacher talks about in Ecclesiastes, you and I are bent towards self-justification because it's what we do, it's who we are. Um, This is a great passage um, from American author... Let me get my pages here. From American author David Foster Wallace. Listen to this. It's really channeling Ecclesiastes here. In the day-to-day trenches of of, of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's hard words. But it's impossible that you and I don't worship something. And when you and I face the reality of vanity and the meaninglessness of life that the preacher exposes here in Ecclesiastes, we are put face to face with all of our continual efforts at self-justification to fight that meaninglessness of life. So the question is not whether or not we do it. The question is, where do we look for it? What are we depending on to make our life worth living? What are we hoping really deep down is going to save us? I've referenced this before as, yes, look, this is a, this is a, this is a PCA church, okay? I don't think anybody in this room denies justification by faith alone, okay? We're all, there's, you know, whatever. We have an actual Savior, but again... Because of what Paul said in Romans 5, because he exposed that reality, we have thousands of functional saviors that we look to every day to do what only Jesus can do for us, and we're terrible at it. They don't work, right? I hated life, because it's all vanity. Is it work? Is it pleasure? Is it wisdom? Is it our children? Is it our marriage? Is it how we look? Is it our possessions? Is it our investment portfolio? Is it, is it, is it, is it our position? Is it our reputation? Is it how well I preach? Is it how well I play piano? Is it my schedule? It could be anything. I know there are college students here. There are people that are headed to college this week. It's a big time that you're, that you're looking. How am I going to... Wow, everybody's looking at me. I was asked one time to do a graduation address. There must have been out of graduation addressers. And, uh, you know, graduation speeches, most of them are just absolutely horrible. It's the meanest things you can say to people. Go out there, go out there and do something. Make something of yourself. Oh, the places you'll go. It's all riding on you. It's like they just finished high school and you hand them cinder blocks. Do you know how much money we have taken out a loan to pay for your stupid tuition? You better get it right. It's really heavy. Or if you're sending your kids off to college, Lord, did we do it right? Is it my investments? Is it, is, it, is it how I look? Is it all of these things? And listen, when John Calvin claimed that the human heart was this perpetual idol factory, he meant that you and I will turn every good thing into an ultimate thing. They're not on the surface bad things, okay? And, and, and I understand that when we start walking down this road, it can sound a little self-defeating. And I'm not, I'm not trying to 
come across as overtly cynical or negative, but it's actually not depressing to, to talk about life this way. It's actually freeing. John Churton Collins said, if we knew each other's secrets, if we knew each other's secrets, what comforts we would find. It's not shaming to come clean about reality. Did it with a friend, did it with a musician friend of mine this morning. It's like I just had two days. I've had two days of sort of idle time, oddly enough. I've got I write marching band halftime shows for a living. I wrote forty five this year. I need an optometrist and a chiropractor. Stat. <laughs> and uh, oddly I've just had these two days where I didn't have a lot. And and one more day and I would have been institutionalized because I go nuts in my own head, you know, and we were talking about it and it was it was it's, and like I, I was before we started talking, she's a good friend of mine. Talked to her about a lot of life. But it's amazing to me how initially embarrassed that I was to tell her what a what a nutcase I can be in my own head. And 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 do you know what my friend Alicia Probe said? She said, Oh my gosh, I do it too. I just told on you, I'm sorry, I hope that's okay. <laughs> you know how freeing that was to hear somebody else say, Bro, yeah. It's not depressing to talk about life in these terms. It's actually freeing. Listen, there's one thing that you're going to spend your entire life running from, and it's weakness. Nobody wants to be weak, okay? That's not something that we put a premium on in this country. Running from weakness is what we're really good at. But we're going to see in a minute, that's the very place Christ is promising to meet us in His economy. And I also don't want to sound, again, I'm just going to get this out of the way. It doesn't mean that all of our misdirected energies and efforts, they don't stop God from working. There's common grace everywhere. I mean, marriages do get stronger. People get healed. Um, there's deliverance. But this is from Him. God is life, okay? I, I get that. What I'm very, very concerned about, though, is this rhetoric in mainstream Christianity that postures Christianity as some sort of miracle drug. And this is where the self-justification gets dangerous. And I would say, part of the pulpit is to warn, and, and this, is a big, this is a big warning, when we start running down the rails of our own justification, it does a lot of terrible things, not just for our own personal Christian life, but for evangelism and discipleship as well. So two quick, quick sub-points. You hear things like this, oh, this is before Jesus, or I used to do those things before I got saved, or, you know, I've whipped that, I've, 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 I've managed to, 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 you know, get that out of my life. Or I used, to live like, I used to live like that without God and it was miserable, but now God and I are tight and things are so much better now that God is my co-pilot. That kind of rhetoric. Do you know what happens when we do that? We take the objective forgiveness and absolution of Christ that He gives to you. doesn't just die for your sins. Your, his righteousness was imputed to you. I'm jumping to the end here, but do you realize the radicality of that if you sit here today? You want your... Here goes a rabbit trail, but again, the pastors aren't here, whatever. Um, I am so over. You just don't know how over. Because you start talking about this radical grace stuff, and, and, and the holy folks start going, Oh! 
he's talking too much about the imperatives. He's not talking enough about the indicatives. They've slid an antinomian, anti-law guy in there, and there's just going to be licentious people. And I'm so tired of that argument. Do you know who the first person was accused of, of, of that was? Jesus. Mike Yanconelli said, according to, the, according to the godly people of his time, Jesus was doing it all wrong. It doesn't make you lazy. When you sit here today, how many of you put a screen behind me and everything you've said or thought this week goes up on the screen? And yet, if you're in Christ and you sit here, God looks at you and He sees the perfect record of Jesus. That doesn't make you want to be lazy. It makes you want to give yourself away. I get excited talking about it. I used to play piano in a Pentecostal church and I might go over there and do it now, you know? Makes you want to give yourself away. So, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm, I'm over this uh, using Christianity as a, you know, I heard somebody say one time, well, Christianity is a crutch. It's a lot more than a crutch. It's a lifeline. It's a brand new, it's a recent, it's a lot more than that. So, here's, here's the problem. We will take the objective absolution, the objective imputed righteousness of Christ, and trade it for what we, for, for what we, we consider manageable for our justification. That is so dangerous, friends. Because then... Your entire Christian life is how well you're doing on the sanctification meter. How well you're managing. Maybe maybe I'm not doing this anymore. What you're doing and what I do, we tie our personal progress, my behavior for God as the sum total of our lives rather than God's behavior for me. Big difference. My, I don't know about you. My life does not look like Jesus. My life looks like somebody who needs Jesus. Every day. Every single day. Also, when we do this, if we root our faith and justification in the face of Ecclesiastes, and we're coming back there in a minute, but in the face of this reality, if we root our faith in personal improvement rather than persistent need we inadvertently prop up the us-versus-them mentality that the unbelieving world sees right through. We sow seeds of outward denial and internal division. We develop by necessity a facade of goodness or holiness to cope with the discrepancy between our insides and our outsides. But listen to me, the world does not need... The world does not need to know some sort of like virtue that we transform. The world needs our confession. That you know what? You may be, you may have life more together than I do. It's the dangers, the dangers of self-justification. That we, that just like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, you and I run to because we're in that old Adam but it's unguarded vulnerability and the freedom from which it flows, it's much more attractive and transformative than anything you and I could hawk up. So, the relief is that 
I'm not the gospel. That's the relief. And we're inching our way to point two. But before we get there, this has to be uncovered. All of us are engaged in the project of trying to find and secure value and belovedness on our own, a job for which we are vastly unqualified, and it's really dangerous if we do. You're going to get to where he gets here at the end of chapter 2. I hated life. It's just vanity. Well, that's encouraging. That's happy. So now what do we do? What do we do about it? Well, part two, what Ecclesiastes foretells. Okay? What Ecclesiastes foretells. If Ecclesiastes unveils the vanity and the meaninglessness of life and our fight to do something about it, our self-justification efforts, what does Ecclesiastes foretell? I was thinking, it's, it's, it's sort of a shame. If you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible... Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's amazing that we give that to children. And not just in this church, but just in general. But I go to that thing, not enough. She says in the beginning that every story in the Bible whispers His name. Everything. Well, if that's true, if the entire Bible, and according to Jesus, actually in Luke 24 it is, the entire Bible is about Him, then even these words herald His name. Look at... Uh, Ecclesiastes 1.13 It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God did it. Go back to the text. Go back to one. Let's look at this. Just the first, uh, like three... What does a man gain by all the toil under the sun at which he toils under the sun? The drudgery of life. A generation comes and goes. Time. Verses 5 through 7, there's this routine of nature. Verses 8 and 9, this, this, this life just has this insatiable appetite. And the rest of it is this struggle for pointlessness. Do you think that Paul could have had Ecclesiastes on the brain when he said that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope? It's in our DNA, Christian, our humanity, that any attempt to make sense of life under the sun without the glorious reality of God's magnificent intervention is destined to emptiness. And God did it. What a loving God. Loves you enough to make you, make you miserable so you'll collapse on Him. Preacher says, come with me, I'll prove it to you. So all the friction that we find is God's work to push us to the end of ourselves and to Him. A few more spots, just to drive this point home. Chapter two, Back in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat and who can drink? Chapter 7, verse 14. Trampolines are fun. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. 
so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And then a big one, chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Caleb's like, wrap it up, dude. Get in there. He has made everything beautiful. That's my, like, month-old third kid back there. Um, And he has also put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Christian, God has put eternity into your DNA. That's why you're restless, like Augustine said, until you find your rest in Him. The only way we will understand our existence and stop running on the hamster wheel of self-justification is by way of the revelation of God. That He has made us for an eternal relationship. When the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, there's Paul again in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a Son. So that you're not just running around aimless down here. Because of His intrusion into time, As the preacher goes on about this drudgery and cycle of life, of life under the sun, we have an announcement here that something has come and crashed into that from the other side of the sun. And in his economy, everything is backwards. Down is up. Poverty is riches. Weakness is strength. Trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. It's not a ladder. We like ladders in mainstream Christianity. Climb up to God. When in that story, there's a ladder and God's just standing there at the bottom of it. We miss it. That's why we come to corporate worship every week. To get our lenses cleaned. Because I'm going to forget this by 2 o'clock. I'm going to look for something. You know, you will too. Luther said, I preach the gospel to my people every week because they forget it every week. He is the missing piece of the puzzle that we're all itching to find. If you're in Christ, life is not just this empty drudgery. Everything that is true of Him is true of you. He meets us in our exhaustion and our failure to maintain an existence on our own with a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. I'm going to leave you with a song. And because I want it to be meaningful, I'm going to read it instead of singing it. Because I don't sing. I wish that I could have met and spent time with Rich Mullins, but I will one day. And I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Before he died, uh, tragically, in a car wreck in 1997, he was working on a project called Ten Songs About Jesus. It was recorded posthumously. So he never got to record this song. There's a demo tape of him singing it, but he's really wrestling with Ecclesiastes in this song. And uh, I want to leave you with these words before uh, we come to the Lord's table. Listen to Rich. You who... By the way... 
since he's not here. Do you know, I think, Rich Mullins' name was Richard Wayne Mullins. You know, and Rick's name is Richard Wayne. I think, I've always told Rick, I think he's Rich Mullins. (laughs) And he's not here, but, you know, I know this is a changing time, but I just have to tell you, and I have to say it, and if I don't get a chance to say it without crying, but I love that man. It's the only pastor I've ever had. Until Grant, too. I had two now. I'm 30-something years old. It was the first time anybody's ever pastored me. So, I love your husband. Grateful for him. Probably won't listen to this. I don't blame him, but anyway. <laughs> He's starting to look like Rich Mullins. I would have looked later in life, too. I don't know. It's really strange. I'm telling you, it's him. I, they need to go check like like records or something. But Anyway, uh, you who live in heaven... Hear the prayers of those of us who live on earth, who are afraid of being left by those we love and who get hardened by the hurt. Do you remember when you lived down here where we all scrape to find the faith to ask for daily bread? Did you forget about us after you had flown away? Well, I memorized every word you said. Still, I'm so scared I'm holding my breath while you're up there just playing hard to get. You who live in radiance hear the prayers of those of us who live in skin. We have a love that's not as patient as yours was. Still, we do love now and then. Did you ever know loneliness? Did you ever know need? Do you remember just how long a night can get when you were barely holding on and your friends fall asleep and don't see the blood that's running in your sweat? Will those who mourn be left uncomforted while you're up there just playing hard to get? And I know you bore our sorrows and I know you feel our pain. And I know that it would not hurt any less even if it could be explained. And I know that I am only lashing out at the one who loves me most. And after I have figured this somehow, what I really need to know. Listen to this, this third verse. Just let this soak down. It's just, just it's good writing is if you who live in eternity hear the prayers of those of us who live in time, we can't see what's ahead and we cannot get free from what we've left behind. I'm reeling from the voices that keep screaming in my ears all these words of shame and doubt, blame and regret. I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. And so you've been here all along, I guess. It's just your ways, and you're just plain hard to get. Man. It's Ecclesiastes 8. He's just, who's going to try figuring him out? He's endlessly confusing for you and for me. But what we do know is that our faith is not predicated on any of the good or the bad we have done. It's one-way love. Straight down from you and from me and all of the meaning and worth and value and significance. Christian, you you have it. Let that be light on your heart today. Let it carry you through just a few hours. But the gospel is true. Um, He's never letting go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come uh, preach today.
Uh, don't take it lightly. Uh, it's a joy and a privilege. Thank you, Father, for reminding us that without you, nothing makes any sense. But with you, 